So we asked the question last week, how do you live godly in an ungodly world? How do you pull that off? Living godly in an ungodly culture. And we looked at Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. It's a great story. I hope you'll go back and listen to it or watch it on Facebook if you missed last week. But Daniel and his friends were exiled. They were taken off as slaves into Babylon. The Babylonian king at the time was Nebuchadnezzar, a very wise man. And he decided when he besieged Jerusalem, besieged Israel, uh, that he would take captive all the best things and all the best people. So he would take the strongest and the smartest and the most beautiful, and he would strip away their Israeli culture, basically brainwash them with Babylonian culture and indoctrinate them to become like him, to think like him, to be like him, to act like him, so that they, the Babylonians, would be stronger, smarter, prettier as a result. Does that make sense? So that was the plan. But Daniel and his friends didn't cooperate, and they weren't influenced. In fact, they went in and began to influence Babylon, which is really cool. And they did it through grace and through truth. And we talked about last week how a lot of us, I think, think it's an either-or, that you either have to be all about truth, and it's all about God's word and God's standard, but sometimes this is tough stuff especially in 2020, and so uh, people may not like me, but I'm going to hold firm to God's word. Or you have other people that swing the pendulum too far in the other direction, and they're full of grace, and they're full of love, and they're full of mercy, but because this is a difficult standard to uphold, we're going to lower the plumb line of God's word to a level of moral relativity. We're going to basically water down the word and make this politically correct, which is not great either. And Daniel proved, and Jesus proved, that you can have grace— and you can have truth, that you can hold this as God's standard, not change the word, but let the word change you, but you can also display great grace and forgiveness and mercy. And that's how they were able to influence an ungodly culture. So the thought that I want to start off with this morning is do we set the culture or do we reflect the culture? Do we set the culture or do we reflect the culture? In other words, are we going to be influenced or are we going to be the influencers? Are we going to be the thermostat setting the temperature, or the thermometer reflecting the temperature. Because I want to be the thermostat. I want to set the room. I want to set the culture. I think that, that's what Christ is calling us to do. In Matthew five sixteen, he says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. And just before that, he said, I want you to be salt of the earth and light of the world. In other words, if we are followers of him, we should make the world taste better. We should make the world brighter. The Snyder, Texas should be a better place because we exist. And the more of us that exist, we should make it even more better and brighter. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he prays this incredible prayer the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's recorded in John chapter 17. I just want to read you two verses. This is verse 15 of John 17. He's praying to, to God. He says, my prayer is not that you take them, them being us, them being his disciples, them being Christians. My prayer is that you not take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So Jesus is praying. He goes, I, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want them to be in the world so they can influence the world. But I do want you to protect them from the evil one who's in the middle of culture. And then he says in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So Jesus is saying, I'm not of the world, they're not of the world, and that's the challenge, is how do we be in the world and not be of the world? How do we be in the world to influence the world but not become what the world looks like? I believe the greatest culprit 
for this ungodly culture is what I'm going to term today is the Babylon mentality. The Babylon mentality. Okay. Now, Babylon, I talked about this last week. The physical dirt where Babylon was is modern-day Iraq. That's the physical place. But I'm not talking about a locality. I'm talking about a mentality. The Babylon mentality is this spirit that has existed from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And it still exists today, and I'm going to prove that to you. But the Babylon mentality is, is uh, it's all throughout, all throughout the Word of God. And I think part of my role as a pastor is not just to preach and to counsel you, but part of my role is to show you the devil's schemes and what the devil plans to do. Because if I show you the schemes, he's a lot less effective in what he tries to do to us to steal, kill, and destroy. And the biggest lie the devil has ever told was part of the first words he ever spoke. So I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you're a quick turner, you can turn there. Look at that. Look at all those, look at all those highlights. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. There was one rule, don't eat of this tree. Everything else is yours. And this is what the devil, disguised as a serpent, said. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Which, by the way, I just want to point this out. This is just for free. But in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it. I can't find it. This was not part of my notes. I'm just adding this. I'm ad-libbing this. If you go back and read Genesis 2, God tells Adam, don't eat of the tree. And then he creates Eve. And I do think it's pretty, again, he's crafty. The enemy doesn't go to Adam and says, did God really say? Because she didn't hear it from God. She heard it from Adam. But he doesn't go to Adam. The serpent goes to Eve. And she's going, well, he, he didn't say it. I don't know, it's just for free. Read Genesis 2. I can't find it on. I got a lot of writing in my Bible. Okay. So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is the enemy's lie that he's going to try to slip in is, I'm for you, and God is against you. That I'm for you, I know what's good for you, and God's against you. Yeah, he doesn't want you eating that tree because you'll be like him. And then you won't need him any longer. He is all about promoting your self-interest. Our self-interest. Because he knows if we can elevate self, then we will demote God almost automatically. So let's go a little bit further to Genesis 11. We see it again. Now, Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. So if we go to uh, chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So again, that's part of the devil's plan is make a name for you, to elevate you, to make you sit upon that throne. Because he knows if he can elevate you, you will demote God. So he says, it's not about his name, it's all about your name and your fame. Let's build for ourselves this tower. But then verse 9, that's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So Babylon, the root word in Babylon, this Babylon mentality is the word Babel, which literally translates as confusion. 
So what he's trying to do is he's trying to confuse you. It's a deranged mentality. It's, it's chaos. And let's be honest, our world right now is a little more chaotic than it was last May. It's just kind of chaotic. And you say, well, where is God? Well, he's right where we left him. We were founded as one nation under God, but God hasn't been over our country in a long, long time. But he wants to be. In fact, 2 Chronicles 7, he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. That's what he wants to do. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants to heal our land. I got a, I got a kind of a half of an amen there. Um, if you're experiencing chaos, it's probably because you bought into this Babylon mentality. It's this confusing, it's this, I know better than God. I can love better than God. I probably can write this book better than God. I have a better idea of how to judge people better than God. And, and he wants to create this. That's, that's part of the enemy's scheme from the very foundation. And that's why it is so confusing. So the Bible begins with this. And, he, and by the way, this lie, he disguises it in lots of different ways. So let's go to the very end of the book, Revelation. In Revelation 17, I'm just going to read one verse. This is verse 5, Revelation 17, 5. It says, the name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. Now, I don't have time to explain all of that. I promise you we will do a Revelation series soon. But basically, everything that's ungodly is rooted in this Babylon mentality. It's at the beginning of the Bible. It's at the end of the Bible. Guess what? Right in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah, chapter 47. The subheading says the fall of Babylon. It's all over this book. It's a spirit that still exists today. And I want to read you two verses, three verses, I'm sorry, out of Isaiah 47. It says, Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and you have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. And that phrase just keeps being repeated and repeated and repeated in Isaiah 47, I am and there is none besides me. We live in a selfie generation. I don't have my cell phone on me, but we just, we always want to take selfies, right? Selfie. I actually had somebody ask me if they could bring their cell phone into the baptistry. And I said, why? And I said, well, I want to take a picture of it. Hashtag dunked. I'm like, no, my wife will take your picture. Like we all, we want to do that. And I'm not against that necessarily. I'm on social media like many of you. Um, but it's a problem. Because it's rooted in this idea of I am and there's none besides me. And that's what the enemy is trying to create is this I am and there's none besides me. He, he is trying to elevate self. He's all about your self-promotion and the demotion of God. And that's a problem. So let's go to Daniel 4. Everybody turn to Daniel 4. So last week we were in Daniel 1, Daniel 4 this week. And... Uh, I'm going to skip around a little bit just for the sake of time. But in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. So he's just all about himself. That's how Nebuchadnezzar was. Well, I'm going to skip ahead, and I'm just going to tell you what happens. You can read it later if you'd like. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. 
and he dreams about this luscious, fruitful tree that's covering the entire nation of Babylon. And then the tree gets cut down, and all that remains are the stump and the roots of the tree. And he wakes up, and he's really confused. He's like, what does that mean? What's that talking about? So he, he calls in all of his enchanters, all of his magicians, all of the very smart people that does life with him in Babylon, and nobody can interpret the dream. So he says, there's that Hebrew boy. Let's bring him in. So they bring in Daniel, and Daniel, with the help of God, is able to interpret the dream. Here he is, Daniel, influencing the culture again. So Daniel says in verse 22, your majesty, you're that tree. <laughs> That's what the dream is, is you're the tree. You're over Babylon, but you're going to get cut down. Skip down to verse 25. You'll be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. So he's basically prophesying, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to go cray-cray. You're going to go nuts. He's prophesying that. And then listen to verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. And I just love that. I love that God, he doesn't completely wipe us off the, the face of the earth. He goes, I'm going to leave the stump. I'm going to leave the roots. He gives them a chance for restoration. And that's what he's predicting here. He goes, when you acknowledge God as God, that he can restore your kingdom. That's just good news for somebody today. Well, Nebuchadnezzar blows off the prophecy. He goes, I, I don't believe that. So 12 months later, he's out on the balcony of his roof. And he says in verse 30, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So you hear my, my, my. It's all about me. He's crediting himself for creating this beautiful Babylon. Verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what, was had been said, or what, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Are you listening to this? So can you imagine this man who was so powerful, who, who was the primary ruler over all of Babylon, is now eating grass like an ox, He's got hair that's turning into feathers, and his nails look like talons of an eagle. Right? He's, he's, like, he's going crazy. And that's what I'm talking about. The Babylon mentality it leads to confusion. It leads to this deranged mentality. Keep going. Verse 34. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride 
he is able to humble. Isn't that awesome? So he becomes a believer, and everything gets restored in Nebuchadnezzar's life. So there's a couple of things that I want to talk about really quickly that I think help us fight off this Babylon mentality. There's three things that I think really help with that. The first thing, and you see this in this story, is we need to exalt God. And it wasn't until he exalted God that everything got restored to him, but we have to exalt God. You've heard me use the analogy of of fans in a stadium. I'm a big football fan. I love football. But I dream about a day when our church is louder than Tiger Stadium on Friday night. I just, I want, when I read the book of Psalm, I read something that sounds more like a stadium than a church service. And I just, I want us just to exalt him and to just lift up high his name. And not to do it just privately in our hearts, but do it publicly. That's why we do baptisms. It's a public profession of this private association. It's, hey, I want to make it a declaration to the world. That we would just exalt him, just exalt him. In fact, Psalm 145.1 says, I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. So I think the first thing we have to do to fight off the Babylon mentality is just to truly exalt him. And again, do it in a very public way. I think it's good to exalt God. The second thing I would love for you to do is to acknowledge God. Just acknowledge him. And what I mean by that is to acknowledge that He is who he says he is. That his ways are right. And I may not understand your ways. In fact, your ways, Scripture says, are higher than my ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above your ways and his thoughts above your thoughts. So I'm not going to understand your ways, but I'm not going to question your ways either. And if I bump up against something in this book that I don't agree with, I'm not going to align the word to me. I'm going to align me to the word. I'm going to acknowledge you. I want to acknowledge that everything that I have comes from you. That every good gift comes from God above. That the only reason that I'm in this seat as a lead pastor of Colonial Hill Baptist Church is because he gave it to me. I don't have uh, the credentials to be in this seat. He plucked out a journalism major from the University of Texas and said, I want you to lead a church. I want you to lead my church. By the way, it's not my church. It's his church. This isn't my service. This is his service. This doesn't belong to any of us. It's his and so we acknowledge that, and we acknowledge that he can take that from us. If there's somebody he is called to lead better than us, then so be it. It's, it's all about him, and we acknowledge him. I love this out of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. This is from the Living Bible. It says, what are you so puffed up about? Why, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if all you have is from God, why act as though you accomplish something on your own? So we exalt God. We acknowledge him, that everything good comes from him. And the last thing we do is we humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. In fact, if you read the last part of that text, he says, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Nebuchadnezzar realized that (laughs) you either humble yourself or the culture's going to humble you. This is the most powerful man who's eating grass like an ox. And he goes, even the most pride will be humbled. So if you're taking notes today, I want you to write down humble myself. You can underline humble and then circle myself. You can humble yourself or you can let the culture humble you. In fact, in the book of James 4.10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So the way I like to think about it, it's humility or it's humiliation. And humility, by the way, is not thinking less of yourselves. It's thinking about yourselves less. That's humility. Humility. 
And so just say, I, I just want to think about you. I want to exalt you. I want to acknowledge you. And I want to humble myself. And I think if you'll do that, you can fend off this Babylon mentality, which I believe is the greatest culprit to an ungodly culture. So if we exalt God and we acknowledge God and we humble ourselves, one of the greatest ways to do that is to give your life in, in humility to God, to realize I'm not running this well. God, you have a better plan for my life. Because again, the enemy, his lie is, I'm for you, God's against you. No, 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 God is very much for you. And he has a plan for you. It's a very specific plan. In fact, before you were born, every day has been ordained for you and written in his book before one of your days came to be. But you and I are so guilty of so many times adding chapters to that book that were never intended to be there. But God has a way, just like with Nebuchadnezzar, of redeeming that last chapter so the book still fits. I don't want you to waste another day on your plan when there's a better, more prosperous plan laid out for you. And so I want you to humble yourself. I want you to exalt God, and I want you to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. So I'd love to walk you through a prayer, and it's a very simple prayer, but it's a prayer for you to pray, to say, God, I confess with my lips and I believe in my heart that you are who you say you are. And the Bible says if you do that, you will be saved. So would we pray that together? Um, I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to repeat after me, and I'm just going to ask the team around me to pray for you. Because I know that God right now is, is working in somebody's heart. And I know the enemy's working really hard to say, don't listen to that guy. It's not about me, it's about him. You're listening to him. Listen to him, not me. Tune me out. Listen to what God is saying in this moment to you. And if you want to give your life to him, I want you to pray this prayer with me. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you came to earth to die for me, for my sins, that you paid the price that was meant for me. You were buried and you rose again. And I have that power to have everlasting life. And I've been given a promise of abundant life on earth if I put my faith in you. And so that's what I'm doing today. I'm exalting you. I'm acknowledging you are who you say you are and I'm humbling myself. It's not about me. It's all about you. So I'm moving over from the driver's seat into the passenger seat and giving you control. Be my Lord and be my Savior. Show me the plan that you have for me that's way better than the one I've been living Help me to escape this mentality, this spirit of I am and there's none besides me. It's all about you. You are and there is none besides you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.